she was just an absolute genius because there's so much packed into narrating because I mean, it improves language it improves auditory comprehension it improves expression. Welcome to Charlotte Mason says I'm John Chindell here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey everyone, I have an exciting announcement to make. Crystal and I will be presenters at the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference, which will be a week of teaching and workshops given by over 20 homeschooling experts, and us, and will be held the 22nd through the 26th of June 2020. Registration is now open and is just $17 for the entire package, which includes the recorded talks, as well as some other goodies. If you're interested, please check out the link in the show notes of this episode, our webpage, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or check your email for an update. Also, we're going to be doing a giveaway for one ticket to the conference, but we've not finalized details on that yet, so more info to come. All right, now that that's out of the way, let's get on with today's show. Today, we're joined by Amy Bodkin, who works at the Charlotte Mason Plenary as their special needs consultant. She's a school psychologist, has an education specialist degree with an emphasis in neuropsychology, a master's in educational psychology, and a bachelor of science degree in psychology with a minor in mathematics which officially makes her the most qualified person on our show today. We talk about narration and writing and the joys and stresses that come along with teaching children, especially children with special education needs. Amy is an awesome person, and we had a great time having her on the show with us, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. So let's get to the show. Hi, Amy. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Good to see you guys. You too. I was looking at the uh, webpage and I saw you had a picture of you. It looked like you had one kid on front and one kid on back. Yes, ma'am. I have one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, my yep. youngest did not learn to speak and she didn't learn to understand language for a long time. So she didn't understand stop or no. Oh. <laughs> and my youngest didn't learn to walk until later. <laughs> So, oh, geez. <laughs> so you carried them for a while. Yeah, it's kind of like twins for a while. <laughs> uh huh. I've, I've about in the last six months, they've I've stopped carrying them, but I think right now they're at about either fifty or sixty pounds combined. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yes, yeah, you I don't, are. I don't remember the last time I haven't, I haven't put them up them. in a while. So you said those are those are your youngest two. Do you have others? Those are my only two. We were going to have more. And then after we had those two, my husband was like, um, so we are two for two on kids with autism and celiac. We can't afford more children like this. So uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to we're going to call it pause on that. Yeah, that's probably, that was that's, probably a good choice. <laughs> you know, I didn't like it at first, but several years in, I'm like, you know, that was a good decision because <laughs> they only get more expensive. <laughs> right. There is a lot of wisdom in that. And as a mom, there's a lot of wisdom in listening to husbands. <laughs> so true. So true. Like, there's some things he's like, okay, I'm going to defer to you because that's your thing. But then there's other yes. things where I'm like, okay, well, whatever you say, we'll just go with it. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> oh man. All right. So two kids, 10 and 12, both with autism and celiacs. Well, that's a, that's an exciting life you're leading. It is. And we also have a collection of learning disabilities that go with it. <laughs> I, I, I would believe it. Yep. Goes with the territory. Yeah. So how, how did you stumble upon Charlotte Mason then? Okay. So when my daughter was a baby, I realized very early that she learns a lot like me. It took us a few years later to get all the autism diagnoses straightened out. But I started Googling autism and homeschooling, I guess about the time she got diagnosed. Because I knew that my experiences in school had been horrible. Well, they weren't horrible, but it could have been (laughs) better. (laughs) So... So I started Googling autism and homeschooling, and the first thing that popped up at the time was Charlotte Mason. Huh. A lot of that's thanks to Tammy Glasser. She's she's with Ambleside, right? Ambleside right. Online? Right. But she okay. also has at least one, if not two kids on the spectrum. I can't remember. And okay. she's written a lot of articles for people about that. So Nice. And mm-hmm. what age was this at? Jess was diagnosed at three. So... Okay. But we had already planned on homeschooling before. We just, when we got the diagnosis, all of a sudden I thought, oh no, can I do this? <laughs> Which is <laughs> gotcha. funny because I was, I'm a school psychologist. So you'd think if anybody would be confident, it would have been me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, there's, there's something different when it's your own kid though. And you're going to take sole responsibility for their education. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a big deal. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, if she was three when you found Charlotte Mason, she's twelve now. Mm-hmm. What what's happened in the last nine years? <laughs> well, uh, let's see. When she was six, I was like, okay, she's six. It's time to school. Yeah, no, that was a bad idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot the hard way um, on my oldest child, and. Once I got a little further along with her, all of a sudden, what I had learned in graduate school, what I learned working, what I learned reading about Charlotte Mason, it all started clicking together. And Mm, so, yeah, it it was kind of a light bulb moment. Um, (laughs) So about eight was when we really started year one. (laughs) So about two years late has been standard for both of my kids. And um, now they are both at the beginning of form two. Okay. And um, they're not, they're not too far behind. Like a lot of things tend to catch up pretty quickly. Once you figure out, Oh, we've got this issue. Um, This is how we help make it better. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's something Charlotte Mason said. So for some reason, everything she says seems to hit the nail (laughs) on the head and you're like, Oh yeah. yeah. Well now that just makes a lot of sense. (laughs) She's kind of a genius. I'm convinced. (laughs) (laughs) She is. Well, and the other thing is, is she was well, well ahead of her times, it seems, yes. in terms of uh, brain science and, and also physical science in yes. how they relate to education and learning uh-huh. in not only children, but adults, too. So ahead. It is. Uh, when I read her work now, I read it more developmentally with all of the research studies and stuff that we've had over the last hundred years or so kind of ringing in my sure. ears. And it is astounding to me. I I have yet to find something where I go, well, she's not quite right. I have yet to find <laughs> one, which is shocking because we're talking a hundred years out. 
over a hundred years out and tons and tons of breakthroughs in science. William James is the father of American psychology and he was born the same year Charlotte Mason was born. So Mm. the beginning of American psychology was when she was born. So anything that she did, she was smart. Yeah, she was. Well, and not only was she smart, but she put all the pieces together. Yes. Very well read. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing that impresses me so much about her as her writing uh, specifically. But but I mean, her as a person is she didn't just read everything and know everything. She she put it together. She made uh-huh. those connections and uh-huh. and then and then extrapolated ideas from those connections. She was a great observer. Yeah, she was great observer of children. She was. And the thing is, reading through her stuff, that's what she wants out of her children. And that's what that's what she wants out of our children is for them to be great observers of their their surroundings. But not only their surroundings, but their surroundings include what they read, what they hear, what they see. And and all of those things, as they enter into their realm, she wants them to make those connections that she was somehow able to make. It's pretty amazing. It is. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. I, so I was I was a homeschool student for uh, for most of my growing up years. Never heard of Charlotte Mason, but I mean, I guess as a student, you don't really pay attention to curriculum. But it's it's fascinating to see the difference between what she talks about homeschooling and then remembering back to what I did because what I did mimicked a lot of what happened in the public school system. It was just better. Whereas what she's doing is. It's education, but it's education on a whole different level than what we see, than what we see in our in our uh, normal or I guess I guess public or or private school systems. Mm-hmm. The typical system, yeah, the typical well, systems. I think a lot of it has to do with what we're going to be talking about today is the narration. I think you're right. Where oh, yes, you you have to be telling back what you're learning, and so. That's that's not something I always had. I was, you know, regurgitated for the test because I could take tests really, really well. (laughs) And don't ask me anything about them. (laughs) So. Uh, I have come to really love narration. And it wasn't what drew me to Charlotte Mason originally, but it's become one of my favorite things. So what was it that initially drew you to Charlotte Mason? The emphasis on living books. Because I learn better by hearing a story. Uh, I could sit in my classes in school and listen to the history lesson, and I wouldn't have to study because I could hear the story and and know it because it was well told. Mm. Um, And same way with literature. I could read the book and then months later take the test and still ace it because the story was well told. And um, my daughter learns a lot the same way I do. And so I knew she would love it. Do you guys use a lot of audiobooks then, or oh, yes. is it mostly you reading? Okay. <laughs> yes. Me and my daughter are both dyslexic. My son is not. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. So we do a lot of audio, but we also read too. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I, I, there's there's definitely a lot to be said for for listening, mm-hmm. and for for being read to. I know that's that's probably ninety percent of the way I consume media at this point. I don't I don't read much of anything outside of, I guess, my Twitter feed um, and and Charlotte Mason's books. Um, but I listen to just about everything else, be it podcasts or or books. I don't remember the last time I opened up 
a book to just read for fun. Usually when there's no audio book available. Yeah. It it makes yeah. me sad when I'm like checking books out at the library and the next book in the series they only have in like a paperback version. I don't like, oh. I don't start those series. <laughs> I have to I have to read this now. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I just started one by Orson Scott Card and I'm like, okay, I know I have one of the books on my shelf and it turns out it's book three. I had picked it up at a sale and the library only had book one. So I had book one that I listened to, book three is on my shelf and so I need to go find book two (laughs) before I start. Yes. Yes. Every once in a while I'll find a book where I'm like, oh, I want to read this. And then there's no audio book. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll read it. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to. Well, it takes me a little bit more concentration than the average adult because I read at half the speed of most adults at my education level. So it takes a while. It's got to really want to do it. (laughs) Right. It's a, it's an effort. I can imagine. It takes, it takes a long time for me to read. Crystal on the other hand reads it three times speed. So Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not quite fair. I I (laughs) devour books and that's just (laughs) what I've done. I got. I get. Come by it naturally. My mother does too. So <laughs> I love devouring them. It's just easier if someone else reads it to me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. All right. Well, we are talking about narration today. We're covering chapters nine and ten, chapters I X and X, because Roman numerals. John does not like Roman numerals. Oh, I hate Roman numerals. <laughs> It's the, the worst system of numbers ever. So we're talking the art of narration, and then we're also talking writing, mm-hmm. which as I read through this, it was interesting how, how much those two flow. And then in the next episode, we're going to be talking about transcriptions, spelling, dictation, and composition. And so all five of these, and honestly, even last coming from last time, we did recitation and reading for older children. Those they all kind of flow one from another and and all through each other because you're all in all of them. It seems that you're all kind of doing the same thing. You're reading, you're writing, you're thinking, you're narrating, but they're all slightly different. Yeah, they each have different emphases. Each have different emphases and each have different points. It yes. seems to me. It is different ways of the same expression. Because she describes narration as an art and you can express art using many different mediums, whether it's verbal, written, reading it to share, listening to share, all sorts. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess, I guess in the same, looking at that in the same way, as both an artist and somebody observing art, it happens in different ways and comes to you different ways, regardless of, like you were saying, you have different learning uh, disabilities and challenges. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's different for you and your children, as it would be for me and my children, it's still all art. Yes. And art (laughs) is best in community. Because when we participate in the larger community of art, then we're able to share our different perspectives and we're able to learn even more than if we were practicing our art in a vacuum. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, And it comes back to the science of relations because relations, that's like 
it's kind of like counseling in a way. Counseling is, you know, your art form, not really a science exactly, <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it involves talking and you kind of have to know how to relate to people. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's really hard if you're autistic. It doesn't really work out so well. I know that because I did very poorly in counseling classes in school. <laughs> really badly. <laughs> uh-huh. That's why I do what I do. Um, Charlotte talks about how education is the science of relations. Well, it's relational. It's really more artistic than anything. And counseling is the same way. So, you know, we love those hard sciences, math, science, uh-huh. things that we uh-huh. can measure and see mm-hmm. and go, oh, they know it. Oh, they don't know it. But it's those soft things, those relational type sciences that are the things that help us become men and women to grow up into a well-rounded. Yeah. A whole person, someone of good character, somebody who is going to bring good things into the world and not um, more evil. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. And even once we get to writing, even beauty and and paying specific attention to what you're doing so that it is a work of art and mm-hmm. it is a thing of beauty. And valuing even if it's it. just handwriting. Yes. Uh-huh. And valuing beauty is important because if we get so stuck on utilitarian concerns, then we can say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if it's pretty or not so long as it's functional. But valuing beauty, <laughs> it teaches us to value people, too. Because people are not merely functional. People also fall into this relational, soft, artistic aspect because we're not just cut and dry. They do. So I work, so I'm an electrical engineer and I do, I do building lighting and power design. So not your typical engineer thing I do, but I work in an office that has architects and electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and structural engineers and and the fast and interior designers and so we're we're all over the spectrum when it comes to the arts and the sciences some of us are are very strongly we're building a building make it the most efficient box you can doesn't matter what it looks like and then on the complete opposite ends it's make it the prettiest thing ever it doesn't matter the cost or if you can heat light or cool it doesn't matter make it pretty and so it's been fascinating. I've been with this company for six years. It's fascinating finding finding the right medium between those two. Mm-hmm. And every project is different and every person is different. Every owner is different. Every building is different. Yes. And, it, and it's been fun to watch that process from the inside as we, as we fight and argue mm-hmm. about what's more important. And in the end, everybody has to compromise. But we we tend to end up with something that is beautiful and functional that none of us would have ever thought of at the start. Exactly. And in philosophy, they talk about how, in a lot of ways, society swings on a pendulum between faith and reason. We swing too far to faith. We sometimes get problems, crusades, inquisition. (laughs) I mean, you know, you swing too far to reason, you've got problems. The Holocaust would be a really good modern example. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so it's always this pendulum between extremes and learning to appreciate both, but not rejecting either. Right. So, 
Yeah, that's been that's been a valuable lesson for me over the last six years is learning learning that the middle is a good place to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Charlotte speaks to that so much in her books. Oh, she so does. Yeah. Speaking, I feel of like which... we talked about pendulums before. On oh other man, topics. so much. <laughs> I don't know when, where, but I'm I'm pretty sure she's used those exact words. The, now Probably. the pendulum is swinging the other way. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> So with narration, this is an art that children just have in them. It is it is there in every child's mind waiting to be discovered, and it is not the result of any process of disciplinary education. So she advocates for simply building on what's there, whereas here, if we have the eyes to see and the grace to build, is the ground plan of his education. And I would agree with that. I mean, sometimes I get questions about whether or not that actually is true, because sometimes you have special needs kids who never speak. And, That's true. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that each child is a person. And each child who has personhood has something within them to, that wants to relate and connect. Yeah. How much they can relate and connect may be limited in some aspects, but they still have the inborn capability to do it. Um, it's just how it's going to look on the outside that may vary from child to child. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also it has to develop in order because narration in a way, it's kind of spinning off of language development. You can't narrate really before you have some form of language because right. you have to understand what people are saying to you or have some way of some form of communication to understand other people and to also want to express ideas to other people. Language, like verbal language is the most efficient because it can describe things like feelings and things that we can't really draw pictures of, at least right. not without a frame of reference. Now, People do think in pictures sometimes, autistics especially, but to use that as a language, it has limitations. So there's a Star Trek episode. I love Star Trek. Uh, (laughs) And there is this alien group that speaks only in idioms and nobody can understand them because they speak only in idioms that they know. And I had this problem in graduate school because I think in pictures. And so I speak with a lot of idioms and the guys who were not from the United States had no clue what I was talking about most of the time. No. Yeah. No, they don't. So it, it'd be like saying, you know, if I told you Juliet on her balcony, then, you know, it might inspire, you know, thoughts, okay, something romantic, loving something. Mm-hmm. But if I told that to somebody who had never heard of it, it would mean nothing. It- it means nothing. Yeah. Person mm-hmm. standing on a balcony. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> it because those those idioms pull up everything behind it as yeah. well. Right. Right. So if you have some kind of like a common um like database, then yes, you uh-huh. can use pictures to describe things and feelings, but really language is more efficient. It's not to say that a child without language can't participate. It's just gonna look a little different. So but it has to develop in order because language has to develop in order. If it doesn't develop in order, there's usually problems. It's There's a very specific order it develops in. And that's the same way with narrating because you can't really narrate until you have language. And right. you can't write before you read. 
there's just no point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? Well, and she goes into that, I guess the next page where she says, mm-hmm. you know, first it's, you know, the oral narration and then you're moving into the written narration and then kind of you're moving into the composition. And so you, you mm-hmm. progress through the stages yes. of narration, just like you progress through the stages of, of language learning. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very progressive, like the whole thing. And she also mentions, this was like, I think the bottom of 231. She said uh, something about how it is possible that they narrate while they are still inarticulate and that the other inarticulate person takes it all in. They try us, poor dear elders, and we reply, yes, <laughs> really? Do you think so? <laughs> to this babbling that seems meaningless. Um, but mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, I, I do that a lot because I also have auditory processing issues too. So I don't always hear things properly. And I'm like, all right, I'll go along with it. And hopefully it makes sense in a little while. <laughs> but, you know, uh-huh. it's funny because all these things she's talking about, it's not just narrating. It's also language. It's also auditory yeah. processing because narration also can help improve auditory processing skills. My kids have better auditory processing skills than I do because of narration and audiobooks. They oh. get the practice of hearing it with different lang- like different um, accents and mm-hmm. different voices. And then they have to listen and then narrate back and it strengthens those pathways. So she was just an absolute genius because there's so much packed into narrating because I mean, it improves language it improves auditory comprehension and improves expression. Right. I uh, go into vocabulary. You can get into spelling when narration turns into writing. Uh-huh. Oh, and written expression versus verbal expression. Getting your thoughts down on paper and yeah. uh-huh. for- formulating those thoughts before you even say them. Well, and the yes. interesting thing to me is that, you know, as a as an engineer, I fall on the side of science. And so I'm I'm more interested in the the measurable sciencey stuff. What's fascinating is that she looks at science. And and we'll get into this in a couple of weeks when we when we do the the uh, the arithmetic chapter, but even arithmetic, there's still narration. Mm-hmm. You're still doing narration in arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Math is narration. Science is narr. It's it's all about seeing a thing, hearing a thing, and then telling about the thing. Yes. Or writing about it, and so even in those more hard science fields, it's still narration. It's still connecting, relating. It is so cool. It's awesome. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Crystal, you were starting to say uh, the next section, she says the power should be used. Well, she says this power should be used in their education. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about, uh, you know, you're narrating when you're six. You're, you're, she says, let them narrate the fairy tale uh-huh. episode by episode. Uh, narrate from the Bible that you read. Narrate from, from good, solid books. And as they get older and as they get better and their comprehension gets better and their narration gets better, the books can get harder or higher level or more complicated. I did find The World at Home. It's on Google Books. And it has, it's only like a two or three page, you know, where are we going? We're going to kind of a geography mixed with stories book. It was a lot of fun to to flip through the first couple of pages of it. But one of the key things, and I, and it's on the top of the next page, is that it has an episode, enough to include an episode. 
And I've run into problems with this where I read something to my son and be like, okay, now tell me, tell me, tell me the story. Tell me it back. And it's just been a description. And, it's, <laughs> and it doesn't work. He like looks at me like, uh, yeah. I, there was a tree. There, there has to be a an episode, mm-hmm. some some action thing for them to narrate. And I hadn't caught that until I was reading this yes. for this this episode. Yes, so. that really helps. So I've been reading Redwall with the the older children or whoever wants to be near, and the chapters in that book are very short. Mm-hmm. The ideas are relatively simple. The words, there's some, there's some big words in that book. And so it's been fun to, it's been fun to, when we get into reading the book, to get to the end of a chapter, which was, you know, two pages, and then ask them what happened, you know, real informally. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not asking them to narrate things because it's a book that we're reading just for fun. And, and our daughter's not, uh, she's six yet. She has six. She's, she has six. Well, she's almost six and a half. Whatever. Uh, but you know, we're I'm, we're we're easing into it. I guess. I guess I'm easing myself into it. Um, but it's been fun because the further we've gotten into the book, the more excited they are to read the next part, and the more able they are to remember what just happened, mm-hmm. because they're more into the story and they're more excited about it. And then between readings, because we only read it every once every couple of days. We between readings, we'll randomly hear them talking about it. Mm-hmm. That's so it's, exciting. It is. It's a it's a lot of fun to start seeing. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and she gets into what the teacher should do, and she says they should talk a little bit or get the children to talk about the last lesson with mm-hmm. a few words about what is t- to be read in order that the children may be animated by expectation, but to beware of explanation and especially of forestalling the narrative. So I actually get to reading the book, right? <laughs> which is very interesting to think of in the terms of scaffolding, mm-hmm. which is kind of building that up more officially where you, you, you have a specific framework for that next lesson. Mm-hmm. How, how much do you do with prepping before a lesson or, or doing this or even writing the words on the board for what the, you're reading about? I gave up on writing words when my first was dyslexic. So (laughs) it just didn't seem to really help. That makes sense. But uh, now it would because she's writing, but now she can also find out how the word is spelled for herself. And I let her do that. (laughs) So, hey, independence is a good thing. Um, Absolutely. But no, I have them narrate a little bit for me about where we were the last time we picked up the book. And that'll be about it. And then we read. Yep, that was step two. And then I have them narrate. And if they have any questions, I'll answer them. Or if I have anything to add, then I'll add that. Not, I'm not trying to tell them how how they should have read the chapter. I'll just say, you know, I noticed this. Or I thought this was interesting. And when you have that kind of a culture in your home where kids are given the opportunity to say what they think without you saying, well, you're wrong. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. you get to say what you think, then it makes for an interesting dialogue where you're able to kind of go back and forth and discuss some real living ideas, which is really exciting. I love some of the conversations we've had. Uh, I remember we read Dr. Doolittle and 
We read the old version with the racist chapter uh, that hadn't been oh, edited. Fun. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, fun. Yeah. But the great thing about it was, was, um, and you know, families just kind of have to make those decisions for themselves. But the great thing about it was my daughter, we got finished with that chapter and she says, but you should like yourself for who you are because who you are is great. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great lesson to take away from that chapter. So <laughs> good job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it when we have those kinds of conversations. And if I dragged it out too long, we'd miss out on that. So when you when you first started with her, mm-hmm. did you do more of the narrating as an example for her? Did did you read it and then you narrate it? We started out with her drawing a picture because she was always very visual. Like when she was little bitty, she'd draw me what she wanted for breakfast because she couldn't remember the words. So she would draw me a picture of the story. And then I would have her verbally tell me what the picture was about. So she wasn't just narrating with drawing because that's limiting in what you can express in a drawing, but it was giving her training wheels to learn to be able to verbally narrate. And now you can't get her to shut up. So (laughs) (laughs) mission accomplished. (laughs) I said I would never complain about how much she talked because I waited so long to hear her talk. Mm, But there are some days where I'm like, I need to go hide. (laughs) So it's where you go tag your it husband. (laughs) Exactly. But now I have an interesting situation at my house because my second child is completely different and has a completely different issue with narrating. Oh man. He would read. He was, he, he learned to read. Well, he taught himself to read by at least when he turned two. We don't know for sure when it happened. Oh goodness. Yes. Darn second children. Yes, exactly. Oh, goodness, two. <laughs> when, oh. He, when he turned two, we're driving down the road. He points to a sign, says zoo. It was green and white. Oh, man. So I went home. I'm like, wow. well, what about this word? What about this word? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, this kid can read. <laughs> <laughs> because the, dyslex- the, the dyslexic mom is thinking, oh, no, what's wrong with this child? <laughs> But that that's, you know, you think it sounds good, but the problem is, is that our brains have two visualization systems. One is for content imagery, like concept imagery. That's what we call it. It's where you make a movie in your head of what's going on. You're kind you do it kind of subconsciously. Uh, You don't really know you're doing it, but you're doing it. And that's how we remember and narrate. And then the other end of that is symbol processing. And so that's how we visualize symbols in our head, letters. That's how you see a word you want to spell. Right. Which Charlotte Mason talks about. So Jessica, my dyslexic one, and me, she and I cannot see very long words in our head. Probably about five letters max, probably. Okay. So after that, we have to use phonics and respell words over and over again. It's a pain. My other one, though... When I asked him what he sees in his head when I read to him, because he wasn't understanding and he wasn't narrating, he said he saw grayscale blobs. And I was like, you don't see movies. He's like, what? You see movies in your head? Can you teach me how to do that? I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. We will work on that. Um, (laughs) He he was reading Mr. Popper's Penguins and he'd gotten like three chapters in and I go, 
hey, how do you like the book? He's like, it's good. I'm like, great. What's it about? He's like, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> but oh, man. the fascinating thing about this is, is that, all right, so this is science that we discovered in 1971 called the dual coding theory that we have images and symbols that we see in our head. And then 20 years later, they came up with curriculums for it. So that's great. But Charlotte Mason talked about both these things over 100 years before that. In the late 1800s. Yes. What the heck? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And she even specifically talks about it in volume six. She specifically said, he will find that in the act of narrating, every power of his mind comes into play, that points and bearings which he had not observed are brought out, that the whole is visualized and brought into relief in an extraordinary way. In fact, that scene or argument has become a part of his personal experience. He knows, he has assimilated what he has read. And memory is encoded visually. That's why we understand and remember what we see in our minds. So she knew this. Oh, man. It's amazing. <laughs> That's insane. It, it just took that long for science to catch up. <laughs> exactly. She was that far ahead, apparently. So They should have they just talked to her. But, you know, that's why you have these steps. And she doesn't specifically in volume one right here talk about the visualization, but she talks about it repeatedly in volume one, volume six, multiple places. Yeah. Uh, she's... I. Yeah, I do remember her talking about that quite a bit. Uh, she had uh, earlier in the uh, the habits the habits section of this book. She talked a lot mm-hmm. about visualizing things and and working on that skill of seeing a thing and remembering it, yes. and then being able to ta- either draw it or talk about it. Yes, and uh, some of those activities that you do with young children, like uh, going and finding something in a field and coming back and telling mom about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I I think. And this is just a, a guess from left field. I think as she kept studying and kept learning, narration became more important to her. Mm-hmm. And I, I pull that because it's not in her principles in the first part. Mm-hmm. And it is in a philosophy of education. Mm-hmm. And she only gives, what's this, three pages <laughs> to one of the to most anything. central... I. There was a Facebook post that said, I would posit that narration is the most fundamental Charlotte Mason thing. And she has three pages on it. <laughs> and these are tiny pages. We know the woman can talk. <laughs> yeah. Because yes. she can go on for pages and pages about some things. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I think as the years went by, mm-hmm. it became so much more fundamental to her understanding yes. of how children learn. Mm-hmm. Well, I would even say that she began to realize how fundamental it was to her because throughout the rest of her lessons up, up until now, and we've, we've pre-recorded a a couple, a couple future episodes already, but throughout all of the lessons that we've read, they're all about narration. Mm -hmm. Narration is everything she's doing. And, and, and I, I said it earlier, it's in, it's in arithmetic, it's in science, it's in reading, it's in literature, history, everything is narration. And so it, it would make sense to me that, that, she had her sister, her method, and she used it. I was going to say system, but that'd be wrong. She had her method, and she used it. And as she used it, she kind of realized what she was doing, mm-hmm. and realized that narration was the central thing that she was doing with everything. 
It's like she became consciously aware of it, whereas in volume one, yeah. it's more like it's a subconscious thing. Yeah, it it's there and it's interlaced and interwoven mm-hmm. in everything. It's just kind of, it's kind of a beige wall. Or did she, I just thought of this to contradict myself earlier. Oh. <laughs> did she not specifically talk about it because she integrates it into everything else? Any, everywhere else right so it wasn't as big a deal because it was just a part of everything yeah and it does get brought up all over the place uh-huh especially by the time you get to volume six narration 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 <laughs> <laughs> visualize visualize <laughs> all of those things yeah. so she she definitely talks about it a lot but i mean she's also i mean it's home education it tends to focus a little bit more on some of the younger children in a lot of ways so i don't know that that's true. Hard. Well, and she, that's right. She does, she, she does specify that this volume is not for children <laughs> over nine, or at least developmentally over nine. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess it would make sense because you're, you're just, you know, you're three years into doing narration. So there's a lot of other stuff that you're doing earlier. Well, and maybe she's not trying to overwhelm the parents. <laughs> that's why well, I could see that. <laughs> For reference, the when I was Googling, you know, narration Charlotte Mason, page two eighty nine, it's in the history section. There's a good defi- or a good example of narration there as well. Mm-hmm. Where where they're not reproductions of the original, it's the original as it comes from the child. That is, his own mind should have acted upon the matter it has received. Narrations which are mere feats of memory are quite valueless. And I've already spoken of the sorts of old chronicles upon which children should be nourished. But it, these are too often are often too diffuse to offer good matter for narration. And it is well to have quite fitting short tells for this purpose. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so it just, again, back to it being woven throughout. I guess it would be fun to just start at the beginning and read and tag all the places where narration is. Well, you do that. Pastors do that on a regular basis in the Bible. Mm-hmm. they'll be talking about a thing and random people be like, yeah, this word was used 573 times. Well, there Clearly you go. it's important. Now you've got your next project. Come out with the Charlotte yeah. Mason concordance. Well, there'd be a relatively easy way to do that. You'd grab one of the web pages and just do a <laughs> fine take function. take an engineer. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, so. I am all about efficiency. I know you are. I'm married to an engineer too. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I claim it's because I'm lazy and I just want to get things done as quickly as possible so that I can stop doing things. If you can do them quicker, why would you want to take longer? I suppose. (laughs) Exactly. I don't. So therefore be efficient. That's yep. (laughs) Regardless of if setting up the efficiency takes forever. Hey, that's not that's not what we're talking about here. We're uh, talking about I'm the act of doing there. the thing. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin said that an hour of no, a minute of planning is an hour saved. So there you that's go. That's right. <laughs> See how many hours of my life have I saved by spending hours of time planning? That's how I justify my school planning. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh man, I had a I had a math professor when I was in college. He would write a problem on the board. It was uh, it was in calculus, and so he'd write the problem on the board, and then he'd stand back and he'd look at it. He'd think and be like, "Well, we could solve it this way, yeah, but that'd take too many steps. Or we could solve it this way, yeah, but then we'd have to use those principles, and I don't really like that. Or we could solve it this way, and he'd get like 
five or six in were like, can you just solve the darn thing? <laughs> <laughs> and then he would do it and it'd be like, oh, da, 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 done. And we'd be like, ah, no, 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 wait, go back. Stop. Hold on. Okay. All right. Now I, all right, good. No, now you can go on to the next one. And it was, it was hilarious. Every single problem. And his tests would be like four questions long. But with like 10 million steps on each of them. Yeah. And then we'd do the, it would take us three hours to do the test uh-huh. and the review would take 10 minutes to be like, oh yeah, this problem, if you did it this way, did it, we're done. Went, oh, come on. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. I, I learned a lot about efficiency from that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. So anything else about narration? I don't have anything else. It's fantastic. I love it. I mean, there's so many amazing things of it. One other thing that for kids who try some of these books that she used and they're not doing well, I found that if you look at the child's receptive and expressive language, sometimes that will help you pinpoint where they need to be. Because although most of the time we want books that will challenge kids, you also don't want to frustrate them. And if their language is delayed, then you're going to need a different measure. (laughs) So, okay. But other than that, I mean, man, it's just awesome. <laughs> it does so many things. You should love it. It's efficient. <laughs> it is. Oh, I do. Yeah. I love it. Well, and and I will say that is one of the things that I do love about Charlotte Mason is it is, she might not think so, but it's all about efficiency. It is. You know, spending 10 minutes on a thing. And we'll talk about that here in a minute well, when we talk even about right writing. Here. This sort of narration lesson should not occupy more than a quarter of an hour. There you go. 15 minutes. Yes. Huge uh, fan. She's all up. She's all about short lessons and get in, get it done, get gone. And if you do it early, and we talked about that earlier with uh, with the habit of attention and and uh, getting things done, that was a part of it. If you get your lesson done quickly, well, little Timmy can go out and play for the next five minutes because he got it done early. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even being more efficient than what efficiency calls for, she she's all about that. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I Mm-hmm. That that is definitely one of the things that that I love about Charlotte Mason That's right. because and and I'll, I'll say one more thing before before I shut up. Um, one of my favorite things about being homeschooled was that I was done with school oh so much faster than any of my friends who were not homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, "Oh, I have to wake up at five in the morning mm-hmm. to to do all the things so I can get to school, and then we're at school until like four in the afternoon." And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, "I wake up at like 10. <laughs> I'm done at three. You're like, oh, you suck. <laughs> like, yeah, you should be homeschooled too. And they'd, they'd be like, well, but then I'd miss out on social stuff. I'm like, well, I sleep until 10. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I still have time to talk with you people. So <laughs> that's right. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, taking the efficiency to a, to another level is, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> so true. So chapter number X, 10, writing. Mm-hmm. She says she can only offer a few hints on the teaching of writing, though much might be said. First, let the child accomplish something perfectly in every lesson, a stroke, a pothook, or a letter. And she says let the writing lesson be short. Mm-hmm. There again, short. Not more than five or ten minutes. Yeah, these ones are really short. I saw a x-ray comparison recently between a, about a four-year-old's hand and a seven-year-old's hand. And just the physical differences. The four-year-old's hand was a lot 
more splayed out and the bones weren't quite as close together, not quite as formed. And the seven-year-old's, while it was still developing, was much more like an adult's hand Mm -hmm. in its physical structure. And they're saying, you know, that's why you shouldn't expect children to be writing properly before they're old enough to. Yes. Because they're physically incapable of it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, there you go. Yes, excellent point. And then a lot of, e- even in sciences, you know, the whole, you know, w- to work your hands, to have better handwriting, do the tangible gross motor skills mm-hmm. to improve your fine motor yeah. skills. Yes. So, mm-hmm. which is why kids running, running around and playing is so important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because they exercise all of those motor skills. Exactly. And so, so in this time, you avoid the habit of careless work, the humpy M's and the angular O's. And this is, I think this is a, a time, a times type of difference. She says the child should have practice in printing before he begins to write. Do you think that equates writing with cursive and printing with block letters? I, I assumed that printing meant block letters. And I liked a lot of what she said in this section. Because if a child has fine motor challenges, like fine motor weakness, a lot of times your block letters printing is going to probably be easier. Okay. And she also mentioned somewhere in here a slate. And that provides more mm. friction. And so it makes it easier to control the hand that's drawing the letters. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, today occupational therapists recommend breaking a a little fat uh, crayon to a stub because it forms the pincer grasp and the crayon provides more friction on paper than a pen or a pencil. So Hmm. for kids who have fine motor weakness, those are really great things to consider there. But on the other hand, cursive can sometimes be a better choice for some kids especially dyslexic kids, because it doesn't really matter how, if your fine motor is okay, it doesn't matter how many times you keep trying to do print letters. If you keep seeing them backwards, then it's just going to be frustrating. (laughs) So in that case, starting with cursive, we started with print with both, but we eventually, they had fine motor delays, but then we moved my daughter to cursive because she is dyslexic. But my son's still doing print. What I noticed, the next part that talks about, let him print the simplest of the capital letters with the single curves and straight lines. And when he can Mm -hmm. make the capitals and large letters with firmness and decision, go to the smaller letters. I did not do that with him. And I really wish I had because he is very dysgraphic and it's because he does not see things in space the way that we do. He has a very hard time figuring out, like, he can't sign because he can't figure out how to hold his hands properly for a sign, even if you show him. Problem-solving skills that involve space are a problem. When he was a baby, I'd stand in front of him. He'd be crawling. If I stood in front of him, he'd keep banging his head against my legs. He would not think to go around because of his spatial awareness. So that makes writing a problem in a different way than a fine motor problem. And 
honestly, if he ever gets to a point where he can write functionally, we'll be very happy with that <laughs> uh, because it's been yeah. such a challenge. But if I had started with just capital letters, I've seen plenty of adults who write in all caps. Some of them have very lovely handwriting in all caps. I work with mm -hmm. a bunch of yeah. them. And it would be enough. A, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a thing I learned early on in my engineering career is that older architects and engineers all learned, you know, when they were doing drawings by hand, everybody, everybody uh, wrote everything in all caps. Yes. And their handwriting was all beautiful. It is actually. So I'm, it is. after reading this, we're going back to that because what we've been doing hasn't worked. Yeah. But say, would would it be worth at this point to go back and and say, okay, let's let's erase those and let's just start over? With, is is that it kind of what you're thinking? It or? wouldn't exactly be like starting over because he does already have experiences that I can't erase. But yeah, that's true. Quite honestly, he hasn't really developed good enough habits with anything to have a habit because his spatial awareness is so crazy sure. that it's. There is no habit. It, it's different each time. Okay. So, so for him, it, it functionally would be like that, though. So I think yeah. we will go stick with just caps. And as we're moving into this form too, let him type for the written narrations. But sure. then still do handwriting with cap and see if someday we can manage functional all capital letter handwriting. So Nice. So you yeah. just said you'd let him type. Do you do you do written mm -hmm. narration on the computer then with them? For him, because for, for him, writing is never going to be an option for him for long sure. term writing just because of his perceptions. And that's improved dramatically over the years. I mean, we started with him running his head in my legs. So this is <laughs> huge improvement. We're yeah. happy with that. <laughs> but my daughter, she's dyslexic and she does not type for her narrations she writes okay if she doesn't know how to spell a word and she needs to look it up because she has no clue how to write it then she can use voice to text to look it up but we don't let her voice her narrations because that's a different skill when you talk right. that's oral expression when you write yeah. that's written expression and so she needs practice at both so saying well we'll do voice to text and then we'll just clean it up for grammar that's not written expression and so no it you know you have to think about where you're at and what the next step is yeah. but you also want to make sure you're strengthening all the skills and not letting them bypass one so that it never develops because that's like exercising everything except your right arm well, <laughs> that's not gonna work <laughs> Yeah. Bodybuilder skipping leg day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody would do that. Yeah. And you don't want to do that no. with your kid. <laughs> a lot of bodybuilders skip leg day. It's kind of funny. It's true. See giant, big, burly men with little chicken, chicken eggs. Legs. <laughs> leg day is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then again, chalkboard and black or chalk and blackboard are better than pen and paper. Yes. As as it is well that the child should rub out and rub out until his own eye is satisfied with the word or letter he has written. So in addition to that tactile feedback, right. they can just, it's its not a big deal to erase it. Right. And we also have, uh, we've been using this lately for our son just because we have some pretty significant issues going on. But um, there's an app called Writing Wizard. And so we can use it on a tablet and you use your finger to trace the letter or you can use a stylus, but it mm -hmm. doesn't let you make a mistake. 
you have to make it correctly or it will not work. Whoa. Interesting. So when mom has way too much going on or you're traveling in the car all day and you still want to get some things done, that's a great way (laughs) to get a little bit of handwriting practice in because it's kind of like using a slate, only not. (laughs) It's a electronic slate That's right really cool. it doesn't have quite that the friction makes you do it right <laughs> exactly without mom standing over your head <laughs> yeah so well, that's really cool we'll have to we'll have to look that up and they have cursive it's a nice little mother's helper <laughs> that's really cool mm-hmm. what, what what caught me about that because i highlighted the same thing you did crystal is the the part that the child the child should rub it out until he's satisfied with it mm-hmm. and and that was something that i i found interesting it's not that it's not that someone else needs to be satisfied that mom or teacher or dad or whoever needs to be satisfied with his work. The child himself needs to be satisfied with it. And the child needs to understand what, what is good enough and what is right. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes back to, you are the only one who can is in charge of your education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a gradual process as, as we're growing these children to release that to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is it the the only education is self-education yes and that's training them when they're first starting to do handwriting yeah so you know, what what is best you tell me what is best mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. here's the example here's here is best and you tell me what you can do best right. mm-hmm. excellent i i know with our son he'd be very quick to just throw letters up and be like i'm done mm-hmm but then you sit down with him and you go, okay, what is the best one? Did you really try hard with these? Is this really the best you can do? And that typically typically will get him thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the new handwriting, oh, she talks text hand first. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure exactly, I, I, large hand, text hand, I'm not sure, or small hand, I, I'm not sure exactly what those three things refer to. I was thinking, and I'm I'm not an expert on, you know, late 1800s handwriting by any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) but um, I was thinking about how when kids are small, we have them start out with large letters on, you know, the blue lines with the red dots in the middle. And Mm -hmm. um, as they get older, we move them to more of a medium hand. But then by the time they're adults, we're really expecting a small, normal hand. (laughs) And so, you know, if we try to get them to go too small, it's going to be too hard with their hands because their hands aren't fully developed. Okay. Uh, right. But if we go too large, uh, there's also some problems with that because the larger you go, the harder it is to co- make those controlled strokes. Yeah. Because it's a longer stretch. I've noticed that writing things out for the kids where it's like, I'm trying to write it big, but that's so hard. Quite it, it's hard. It's well. hard to write it big. Uh-huh. Exactly. you haven't practiced it. Mm-hmm. And there's some different types of papers and stuff. And we've experimented some with that just because my sense is graphic. Um, they've got papers where the lines are raised print. So you can feel the difference of where the lines end trying to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Where your letters go. There's also some that have pictures. So the bottom line is green with a flower coming out of it. The top one's blue. And so it's like a sky. So it's kind of helping you with your orientation of, you know, what's up and what's oh. down. So they've got things like that. They do tend to be larger, though, and it does make it harder to write. So given how much trouble we've had, especially after rereading this section again, because I haven't read this one in a little while, I'm probably going to have him do all caps, and I'm probably going to switch him to the single-spaced lines 
that we use when kids get a little older. Hmm. So, okay. Well, I think overall in this, as in everything else, the care of the educator must be given not only to the formation of good, but to the prevention of bad habits. Mm-hmm. And again, tying everything back in, you you be careful and precise in these early years yeah. mm-hmm. to form the habit of doing it right, mm-hmm. doing it well, doing it beautifully, and not being sloppy, not being mm-hmm. too hasty. And, and then everything flows well from there. Yeah. Yes. And making sure that you have all the underlying skills necessary. That's something that I've come to really pay closer attention to having watched my kids go through a lot of these early stages. If you don't have enough gross and fine motor skills developed, then you're not going to get the right grasp in your hand. So then you're not going to be able to follow through with good habits. So as mom, you're setting up good habits, but you're also making sure that they're set up for success in the first place by putting things in order. Because, you know, that's why she said, let them play, let them spend time outside, you know, for so many years, more so than we usually do, which Mm -hmm. one of you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we think about, we think about that with math because it is very much of a building block Mm -hmm. study. Mm-hmm. And so you you do think about, you know, having to understand before you move on to the next level. And you don't necessarily think about all of those levels in reading or mm-hmm. in writing or yes. in in science, but it's applicable in there in, in all of these. Exactly. Fields. Yes. And language, especially any language oriented subject is very ordered. There's a specific order. It all goes in. It is. We just tend to not think about it as such. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. It is. She starts She starts talking about a book called A New Handwriting. She says, oh, my goodness, this lady I was talking with, she was doing this amazing thing, and I waited patiently, though not without some urgency. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I need this book to come out. I don't know if anyone here has ever had that feeling. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say I read through Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time while, he, while was- he was still alive, and then he died. So... I know all about it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the need for this book was very great for the distinctly commonplace writing taught from the existing books, however painstaking and legible, cannot but have a rather vulgarizing effect upon both the writer and the reader of such manuscript. It wasn't beautiful. And so this this lady, Mrs. Robert Bridges, succeeded in her tedious and difficult undertaking and brought us this book and can be a style of writing which is pleasant to acquire because it is beautiful to behold. And then, you know, in a, in a little bit, she's going to she, she writes the introduction to the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, she copies it. Yeah. She says, here, here, this is so exciting. Here, let me, let me have her tell you. This is so exciting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this one is also available in Google Books. Google Books. So. Interesting. Um, I think italics is like, that's what it sounds like to me. It's a very nice blending between print and cursive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It, it has the beauty, but it's not quite so strung together. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, I think that that's kind of how I write at this point. So I use some cursive letters that make sense when they go together. But not all letters need to have loops and things. An L can just be a line. It's okay. <laughs> my mom writes in a combination of print and cursive. Yeah. One of the th- my thoughts back when, you know, before I actually started teaching, was that I would learn calligraphy while my kids were learning how to write. That has not happened. <laughs> I thought but... that would be nice too, and you're right. That hasn't happened. <laughs> It was a nice thought. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. You know, they have those nice little pens that kind of make it look like you did calligraphy, but you actually cheated because they've got the little <laughs> tip on the end. Yeah. That's as close as I've gotten. <laughs> well, and the other part is, like you just mentioned, they had different utensils. Yeah. The the ballpoint pen, I'm pretty sure wasn't around. That was a space thing. So you're using fountain yeah. pens and... Just the, like she said, the go from chalk to pencil to pen. Well, and gel pens certainly weren't a thing yet. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so there's, there's, it, it's interesting to look at it a hundred years later and be like, well, let's, how, how does this still work? Mm-hmm. And hey, who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll get back to calligraphy, but uh, sure hadn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, life bucket list goals, I guess. Hey, mm-hmm. if anything, a Charlotte Mason education will give you a huge, long bucket list of goals of things you'd love <laughs> to, you know, take a meander mm-hmm. through at some point. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. No, it's not. It's like, um, it's not. what is it? That story about how if it's good to have books on your shelves that you've never read because it reminds you of all the things that you don't know yet. So yeah. it's a good thing. Keeps us humble. A good one. It does. It does. It makes me feel better about all the books on a shelf. I haven't read yet. <laughs> That's what I tell myself when I keep buying new books. <laughs> there was, I think there's a word in another language that, that deals with collecting books that, you know, you might never get to. I don't remember if it was like a Swedish word or a Japanese word or something like that. Where it's like, there, there's this concept of you have a book that you, you you know it's good, but you might just never get to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I love that idea. I don't know what that was. That's fun. Well, I will say, so, you know, she talks about this, the Bridges, uh, a new handwriting. It makes me think about all of the other handwriting systems that are out there, the anything else. And, and I know there's a wide range of all kinds of things. And one of the things that we keep coming back to is that one of the one of the great things about Charlotte Mason is that there's so much flexibility in the specifics of how you do it and how you apply it to your own family, to your own children, because each yes. child is vastly different from the next in ways that none of us would have thought of when we were having them. And and no kidding, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I, the thing that I take from this is that. You know, Ms. Bridges came up with a great thing. Awesome. So did other people. Other people have come up with awesome things. So, I, you know, the, the big takeaway here, I think, is find something that works for you and your family and your child specifically 
and do that thing. Yeah. Completely agree with you on that. I mean, that's the best part. And in a lot of ways, she, she makes me think to me, teaching in a Charlotte Mason homeschool is more like being a facilitator. And when I read her books, it's like, she's a facilitator. She's trying to put you in touch with all these different ideas and kind of like connect these like dots and ideas and stuff and facilitate you taking in all this information. It's not all this brilliant plan that she came up with all by herself of just her ideas. It's, hey, there's all these wonderful people who've come up with all these ideas and I'm going to present them to you. So I'm facilitating, introducing you to all these fabulous people. (laughs) Yeah. So, and we do the same thing with our kids, you know? We read them books and introduce them to authors and artists and composers and all kinds of wonderful ideas. And then enjoy as they experience those things. And we get to experience them with them. And see how they experience them differently from how we did. Yeah. Just like you were talking about earlier with narrations. After you go through a narration, you get to have those conversations Mm -hmm. of, well, this is what I thought was interesting. Well, this is what I thought was interesting. Whoa. Totally different. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. Cool. It is. Well, Amy, any last thoughts on on uh, really either of these chapters or or I guess Charlotte Mason homeschooling in general? Uh, we've covered most of it, I think, from these chapters. I and mean, we, we went pretty in depth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do love this. I, I love this part, though, because it's the very beginnings of a child connecting with ideas you know, first through narration and then beginning to put some of those ideas into a printed form of their own when they want to. It's it's just so exciting to see those little light bulbs happen and, and to get to be a part of that. It can be frustrating, I think, to parents when things aren't going the way it looks in the book, <laughs> um, yeah. which, you know, it's what I do when I'm over uh, working with Rachel at a Charlotte Mason plenary is helping uh, families anyways figure out where their kids are at and then how you can apply that method to the way their child is developing. So, Mm -hmm. and, and helping them find a way to help their child find some balance because that's one of the things I've noticed reading through Charlotte Mason's books is that she, I don't know that she ever comes out and directly says it, but it does seem that everything is about balancing things out so that the child is developing well physically, is developing well you know, emotionally, is developing well yeah. educationally. All these different areas that go together to make the whole person and then trying to help them remain somewhat balanced. And that's why certain things aren't introduced until a child's a certain age because they're not ready for that until they've got all these other things that intersperse together to help you be ready for this next step. So I don't know. I, I love, I love looking at it developmentally and getting to see that and then getting to learn from each child and family I work with. It's kind of in a lot of ways like personal training because <laughs> you're going, Oh, we haven't been exercising the right arm. We've got to fix that. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, uh, but it, it's so, fascinating because each child teaches you something new 
So just like my two have taught me so many new things. Right. So I get Very to be cool. the student just as much as Charlotte Mason got to be the student from the children she worked with. I right. get to be Charlotte Mason's student and my own kids' student. <laughs> and it's just so much, so enjoyable. And it adds so much richness to life, this relational aspect of connecting with each other and the ideas and sharing the things that are super important to all of us. Yeah. You mentioned the plenary. Is that the only place we can find you online? That is the only place that I work online. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) And how long have you been with Rachel now? I've been with her for, I guess it's been about nine months. I've done private consulting for the last 15 years. I'm a school psychologist. But this is the first time I've worked with someone and worked um, not locally. And I really like it. I, um, I, I chose to work with Rachel because it's very important to her to make sure that children are seen as people and that individual and family differences are honored. And um, she's also a very... She's a good person. <laughs> and it really helps if you like the person you work with. As I'm that sure is, y'all know, right? Huge. That is huge. I don't know about him. Yeah, it's, it's tough. <laughs> it, it's true, though. If you don't like who you work with, it it can make life so miserable. So it, Yes. Yeah, it can. Yeah. It so, um, yeah. So I work over there with her. I do consult consults with um, special needs families. And then um, I also sometimes uh, teach different courses with her and uh, do videos and stuff on different kinds of challenges that special needs families have come up, whether it's behavioral or academic, those kinds of things. But everything we do is through Charlotte Mason lens. doesn't matter if it's a Charlotte Mason family or not. The consultation is from a Charlotte Mason perspective. (laughs) Children are people first. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. So, so if any of our listeners have special needs children or are struggling with how to, how to do a Charlotte Mason education in your own home, mm-hmm. definitely get a hold of the plenary and get a hold of Amy over there and, and, uh, and they'll, they'll help you out and hook you up. So that's right. Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. It was really fun getting to visit with you guys, too, especially since it was about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> well, there we go. Good. So. All right. Well, I guess we'll call it. There you go. Cool. Right. <laughs> good night, Amy. Hey, it was good talking with you guys. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Of course. It was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Don't forget about the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference. If you're interested in attending, please find info at any of our social media places, our website, or our emails. We hope to see you there.